Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Most missing persons cases are solved within a short time of them happening. They often involve some sort of error in communication, and in many circumstances, they aren't that sinister. But when hours turn into days, things start to become more concerning, and when days turn into weeks, the case becomes much more complex. When weeks turn into years, the disappearance becomes a cold case, and at this point, it is pretty safe to assume that the people missing are deceased. While there are instances of people leaving their lives behind and covering their trails well enough that they aren't found, those cases are rare. People vanishing is always confounding, and the cases always seem to have such little information left behind that they seem utterly hopeless. That was certainly the case when Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman disappeared in Newfoundland, Canada back in the summer of 1993. But their case has a bit more to it than other missing persons cases I have told you about before. I have been trying to understand what happened and why for weeks now, and it's time I told you about the disappearances of Kimberly and Dale. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman were a couple living in Portugal Cove St. Philip's, Newfoundland, just outside of St. John's. They lived in a basement apartment attached to a home on Dogberry Hill Drive. While they were there, the two both worked at separate jobs. Kimberly had a job at the airport and restaurant, but in August of 1993, she had been let go from her job on the 27th of August 1993, Dale and Kimberly had returned home and were ready to turn in for the evening. On August 30th, Dale was supposed to head into work, but he didn't show up. When this happened, his boss called up Dale's parents and basically said, Hey, your son didn't make it to work. He didn't pick up his phone. Do you know where he is? At this point, Dale's parents had no idea where he was, but they decided they should probably try calling him up. When they did, there was no answer at his apartment. His parents figured they should probably go and check up on him and Kimberly just to see why he had missed work. When they got to Kimberly and Dale's place, they saw Dale's car was in his driveway, but when they knocked on the door, there was no answer. They tried to find a way in, but couldn't, so they went home and called in a welfare check. When they did that, the police arrived at the basement apartment and opened the door. When they looked in, nothing really seemed out of place. Dale and Kimberly's apartment looked like they were literally just there. The toaster had a slice of toast in it, their fridge was fully stocked, Dale had left his wallet and ID in his vehicle, and Kimberly had left her purse which had all of her IDs, her keys, and a couple of thousand dollars in it. When police looked at other items belonging to the two, Dale didn't appear to have any missing clothing, but Kimberly had a few items of clothing that weren't there. 
Based on what police saw at the scene, they decided that the most likely situation was that the two had gone out somewhere, Dale had forgotten he was supposed to work, and that they would return soon. The police said to call them when they returned, but when hours went by, the idea that they had just stepped out for a minute became much less likely. After a day had gone by, the whole concept of them being out and about was thrown away, because that just didn't make sense anymore. But there was no signs of a struggle at the scene. Dale's car was there, and clearly nothing of value had been stolen if Kimberly had over a thousand dollars in her purse. The investigation then shifted to the idea that they may have run off. There was no real reasons for them to have done so, but it was really the only thing that made sense at the time. The two had no known enemies, and no one knew of any person who may have held a grudge against them or had any reason to harm them. The first step in the investigation to move it forward was to figure out where the two may have gone. Since Dale's car was still there, investigators first called taxi services in town to see if anyone had picked up two people matching Dale and Kimberly's description. But no one had given them a ride in their taxi, so then investigators contacted their neighbours and people who lived nearby to either see if they had given the two a drive or to see if they had heard anything from them that may indicate where they had gone. This also yielded no usable information. The final idea put forward before making an appeal to the public was to call up airlines, airport staff, and travel agents to see if anyone had any contact with the two. Again, there were no satisfying results, and investigators were back at square one. After all these attempts were exhausted, the RNC reached out to the media to release information on the two. The chief of police said that they looked into most things that they could think of, and that if anyone in the public has seen or heard anything, that they should come forward to provide any information on the disappearances. For a while, this press release didn't give anything to the investigation. But in the 2000s, a few things started to come through that made the investigation go from a cold case to, I guess, a lukewarm one. It definitely wasn't warm. The first tip that came in was from someone who had reported that they had seen Dale and Kimberly on board the Newfoundland ferry out of Port-au-Bass, heading to Glace Bay, Cape Breton. This tip seemed like it could be true, so investigators went out to look into it. When they got there, it turned out that the two on the ferry weren't Dale and Kimberly, they had just looked similar. The next tip came in May of 2002, from a person who was reporting on a rumor that had been circulating the Portugal Cove and St. John's area. This rumor was that Kimberly and Dale had been murdered, and that their bodies had been left in the pond in the Whitburn area. Investigators brought in cadaver dogs from Ontario to aid in the search of this area. After a lengthy investigation of the area, the teams came up with absolutely nothing. A few more tips came in here and there, but the case grew cold once again, and none of the sparse tips coming in really had anything to substantiate them. So there the case sat, cold and utterly unresolved. But then, in July of 2006, information was released to the public that came as a complete shock to everyone. In July of 2006, police announced to the public that they had someone in custody related to the Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman disappearances, and that this case was no longer considered a missing persons investigation. It was a homicide case. 
In early July of 2006, Joey Oliver had come forward to the police with a confession, one that a psychic had told him he should make. The first thing Oliver said was that he knew where investigators could find the bodies of Dale and Kimberly. Based on the information provided by Oliver, a search team assembled, and on July 13th, Operation Rescue commenced. The teams went out to Thornburn Road, which had a small dirt road attached to it that led into the woods. This dirt road had terrain so rough that it was barely passable, but after traveling 2.1 kilometers along this rugged path, the search team came upon an opening in the woods. This was the area that Oliver had described. The team brought in a backhoe and began excavating the ground. After hours of searching, the team didn't find anything. Searchers returned the next day to dig again, but after putting in another long day of work, again, there were no results, and things were looking pretty bleak. But then, on the third day of searching, there was finally something uncovered that may be useful in the investigation. During the third day of excavating, the backhoe uncovered a skeletal foot. When the area was dug into a bit more, legs were found. Soon, two mostly skeletonized remains had been uncovered. The two sets of remains had been buried in a small, unnatural depression in the ground only about two feet deep. Because this location had swamp-like conditions, the soil pH was much higher than that of most soils, and because of this, there was still some soft tissue remaining on the bodies. This allowed for the identification to go a bit easier, and the two were identified as Dale and Kimberly. When the gravesite was examined, 6.22 caliber bullet casings were found a little bit away from where the two had been buried. The bodies both had bullet holes in their heads that appeared to be from an execution-style gunshot. Kimberly had one bullet hole in the back of her skull and a bullet inside of her skull. Dale had three bullet holes in the back of his head. A bullet was found when some scalp skin and hair was pulled back from the front of Dale's head. Another one of the wounds had an exit wound from his forehead. Now that the two had been recovered, it had become abundantly clear that Oliver's story was at least somewhat credible, and they requested another interview with him, but this time they wanted to record it. When Oliver came in for the interview, he provided investigators with a story, and whether or not the overall story is true, the details given in terms of how the two died were valuable in the case. Immediately after the interview began, Oliver started talking about how he was coming forward because of the guilt he felt over these deaths, and that he would have come clean sooner if he wasn't terrified that the killer would hurt his children. Of course, this was an interesting statement, because clearly, if Oliver was to be believed, this case involved multiple killers. Oliver said that he and a man named Shannon Murin went out for a drive, and Murin took him to the woods where Kimberly and Dale's bodies were located. Oliver claims that while they were there, Murin told him to bring Dale there tomorrow so he could, quote, give him a few bangs. And Oliver thought this meant that Murin was going to beat up Dale. The next day, Oliver went to Dale and Kimberly's basement apartment and told Dale to come with him because he had a stash of stolen goods and that Dale could have some of the items. Dale agreed to come, and while he was heading out, he said, Come on, to Kimberly. 
Oliver didn't know what to do. She wasn't supposed to be part of any of this, but he felt it would raise suspicion if he said she couldn't come, so he let her tag along. The three headed out to the wooded area, and when they arrived at the start of the dirt path, Dale got out of the car. As soon as they had walked to the wooded clearing, Mirren shot Dale in the head. Oliver yelled out, what the fuck? And then Mirren pointed his gun toward him and said, go back to the end of the trail or I will shoot you too. Oliver did so, and a little bit later, Mirren showed up saying that he put four bullets into Kimberly and buried them both. The terrain there was super tough, so he was only able to get two feet deep using a shovel, and he tossed them into the same grave. At this point, Oliver says he wasn't aware of whether they were buried together or not, and he wasn't even convinced that he had done what he said to Kimberly, since he hadn't seen any of it himself. The two headed home, and then the next evening they returned. Mirren told him to clean up anything with blood on it, and after they finished, the two went home and parted ways. Oliver says that he couldn't stop seeing the image of Dale being shot in front of him out of his head. But at this point, he was still terrified that Mirren would come for him, so he didn't say anything. But 11 years after the murder, the guilt was too much, so he decided to report it. If you think this story seems a bit too convenient, you wouldn't be the only one. Because after five hours of interviewing Oliver, investigators returned and told him that he was being charged for murdering Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman in the second degree. But don't let the charge fool you. They believed this murder to be premeditated first-degree murder. But they knew that without Joey Oliver's confession, they likely would have never found Kimberly and Dale's bodies, so they felt it necessary to lessen the severity of the charges. While investigators believed Oliver was the orchestrator, they still believed that others were involved in this. After his interview, Oliver's preliminary hearings began. These hearings carried on for over two years before this case was ready for trial. December 8th of 2008 was the last day of the preliminary hearings, and at this session, Judge Greg Brown announced that Joey Oliver would stand trial for murdering Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman in the first degree. This change in sentencing was a shock to Oliver and others involved. Dale's mother, Beryl Worthman, strongly believes that Oliver is the sole individual responsible for her son's murder, so she was relieved to hear the charges were upped to first-degree murder. In an interview, Beryl said she was happy he was getting the right charges, and now they just needed to see if judge and jury would agree. But Beryl never got to see what a judge and jury would think, because before the trial began, Oliver took a plea bargain. This bargain changed his charge to manslaughter in exchange for his confession. Oliver jumped on this bargain and he was officially charged with the manslaughter of Kimberly Lockyer and Dale Worthman. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison for these murders, with four years removed for time served. This 11-year sentence was a disappointment to Beryl and others who believed he was the sole killer. Once Oliver went to prison, the public all wanted to know what came of his accusations against Shannon Murin. In an interview, Murin said that there was no basis to the claims put forward by Oliver and that the only reason he had made them was because Murin was an easy target. Oliver had also called Murin just before he had confessed to the police 
saying that he felt the guilt was too much and that Mirren was the one who murdered them. When Mirren got this call, he kept it and recorded it so that he could hand it over to police to not make it seem like he was hiding any sort of evidence. Mirren was well acquainted with the legal system in Canada. Back in 1995, Mirren had moved from Newfoundland to British Columbia. The year that he moved to BC, he became a prime suspect in the murder of eight-year-old Mindy Tran. He stood trial for the charges of first-degree murder, and it was looking like he may be convicted until something completely unexpected happened. During the trial, it was found that the lead investigator in the case who had gathered all information on Murin was intentionally falsifying records to ensure conviction. When this was uncovered, the case was thrown out because a case can't be based off of false information. This meant that Mirren was exonerated of all charges in the death of Mindy Tran. But this case was big news. Everyone seemed to know about the trial, and according to Mirren, it made him a very easy target as a scapegoat for Oliver's confession. Especially because of something written in those falsified documents. When the investigator had taken his notes on Mirren's case, Mirren apparently offered up information if he could be transferred to a Newfoundland prison. What he said is certainly something that gave me pause. He said that he could give information on a double homicide in Newfoundland in exchange for his transfer. When Mirren was asked about this, he said that he was only saying it to get transferred and that he didn't actually have information on the case. But one thing that I keep coming back to is that at this time, Dale and Kimberly's case wasn't considered a homicide investigation. It was still a missing persons case. Why would he randomly mention a double homicide instead of saying he could tell the investigator about where the two went? In any case, this information isn't admissible evidence because it is part of a falsified report. So, in the end, Murin was never arrested or tried for any relation to this case. In 2016, Joey Oliver was released on full parole after serving a total of 11 years. And that's counting the four years time served. So when I mentioned that he had an 11 year sentence, he only actually served seven out of those 11 years. Since his release, he moved to BC and as far as anyone knows, that's where he is today. Oliver is now 50 years old and able to live out the remainder of his life as a free man. This case may seem closed, but there are a lot of questions left unanswered. Did Oliver act alone? Were there any other suspects investigated? And was Joey Oliver the one who truly murdered Dale and Kimberly? I don't have any answers to those questions, but hopefully one day we will receive a bit more closure. There was one thing that I mentioned earlier that I know if you are anything like me, you want to know more about, and that is the murder of Mindy Tran. What happened in that case, and was anyone tried after Shannon Murin was exonerated? Well, I don't have the answers for you right now, but in the next episode, I will tell you all about the unsolved murder of eight-year-old Mindy Tran. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shelley Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. 
The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank <music> you.